Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Straight Talk Radio, where we discuss business, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Tonya Keating, live from the Seattle area at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on Thursday, November 13th. Listeners, dial 646-378-0261 to chime in live. Press 1 on your keypad, like ratings in your hand in class. So now that I've said that, for those who'd rather send me a comment or question, just go to chat, and you can do that. This afternoon, I'm kind of nursing the crud, but we'll try to get through this painlessly. Uh, I expect to mostly fly solo, uh, given some listeners uh, a recap of a World Affairs Council meeting I attended yesterday afternoon. U.S. Treasury Secretary Jacob J. Liu was there, and he discussed the state of the world economy and what can be done to improve global economic growth. And this was before he was heading off to his trip with President Obama to the uh, G20 leaders summit in Brisbane, Australia. So we'll have a link to the text and the video on our Blog Talk Radio site, as well as our Facebook page. So you can just head there uh, to get the full deal when we're done. But for now, we're just going to try to walk through some of the things that I thought were um, said and some of the highlights. Um, now, well, I guess I should back up a little bit. Who was Jacob Blue? I mean, you see these shows out there. I think it was, uh, I want to say Jay Leno used to do something where he would stop people. And I think some shows are still doing it, kind of the man in the street thing where you stop and ask people, who's your vice president? And they look at you and say, oh, I don't know. Uh, so I figured I'd take a little uh, time here to, to talk about who Jacob Blue is. Uh, obviously, he's the... Uh, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. He was confirmed uh, by the Senate in 2003, back in February, and he's the 76th uh, Secretary of the Treasury that we've had. He previously served as the White House Chief of Staff, and before that he was Director of OMB, and for those who don't know what that is, it's Office of Management and Budget. And uh, it's a position that he also held in President Clinton, his cabinet, back from uh, 1998 to 2001, I believe. So before that, uh, he... um, before he returned to OMB, I think he, in 2010, he joined the Obama administration, and he was Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. And so before joining uh, the State Department, he served as Managing Director and Chief Operating Officer for two different Citigroup business units. So he's kind of been around. He's got that public-private sector balance. And then prior to that, he was Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of New York University. So he's got the educational piece, too, where he's responsible for budget and finance and operations. And he was also a professor um, of public administration. So he's got the you know public PA thing. Um, from 2004 through 2008, he served on the board of directors of the Corporation for National and Community Service. And he chaired its management, administration, and um, government committees. And then, of course, as OMB director, Going back to that from 1998 to 2001, he led the administration budget team, and he served as a member of the National Security Council. So uh, the U.S. budget operated as a, at a surplus for three consecutive years while he was doing that. So that's kind of a highlight for him. And earlier than that, uh, he served as OMB's deputy director, and he was a member of the negotiating team that reached a bipartisan agreement to balance the budget. So 
He was also special assistant to President Clinton from 1993 to 1994. Uh, he helped design AmeriCorps, which is a national service program. So everybody's still keeping up here? So Jack uh, began his career in Washington in 1973. He was a legislative aide, and from 1979 to 1987, he was a principal domestic policy advisor to Tip O'Neill who was then House Speaker, and served the House Democratic uh, Steering and Policy Committee as Assistant Director and then Executive Director. Uh, he was TIP's liaison to the Greenspan Commission. Uh, they negotiated a bipartisan solution to extend the solvency of Social Security in 1983, and uh, he was responsible for domestic and economic issues, including Medicare and budget and tax and trade, uh, appropriations and energy issues. Before joining the administration, the Obama administration, he co-chaired the advisory board for City Year New York and was on the boards of the Kaiser Family Foundation, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the Brookings Institution, uh, Hamilton Project, and the Tobin Project. So he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, National Academy of Social Insurance, and a member of the Bar in Massachusetts and in the District of Columbia. So yeah, quite an extensive resume there just to get some context. So, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to hack and, and clear my throat throughout this entire broadcast, so it is what it is. But the World Affairs Council meeting, I've been a minister-level member on and off for several years and have spent my entire life in politics and policy. Uh, so I was interested, obviously, in what Lou had to say. And the WAC meeting was brief. You know, it was supposed to be an hour, but he I think he got there a little late, and he left by you know a little bit after 2 he was done. He used a teleprompter. And I heard some attendees chuckle at the end about how uninspired his presentation was as a result of that. So when you're globetrotting like that, he's tired. He's probably got a lot of different things. He did two or three th different things earlier that day, and he was heading straight from the meeting over to uh, G20. So when you're globetrotting, like I said, it, it makes sense to go off your notes, and I get that. But uh, if you're if you're eating and sleeping this, uh, sleeping this stuff, I think sometimes you can you can go a little bit off script and. I think it would be relatively easy to do and, and just kind of talk to us about what you're thinking. But I don't know. Then again, maybe not with the media where they're ready to pounce on everything you say and, and kind of distort it. And, and it, Interestingly enough, many of the articles that you'll read out there, it's, it's, it's interesting. You come back with a different take. Uh, the connotation changes based upon how somebody wants to sell it, whether it's clickbait or just, you know, a way to engage. But some of the articles that I've read, you know, they kind of lead with, a, you know, very strong words. So Lou faults the Europe's, you know, you know leadership of the head of G20 meeting. And, uh, you know, you see other articles that would use words like, uh, you know, he uh, boasted about, you know, the U.S. or he blamed, you know, European leaders or he called this, you know, called out, you know, Germany and the Netherlands and, you know, warned about this and that and the other. And I get it, like I said before, but, you know, sitting 10 feet away from the guy, um, that wasn't really how I interpreted his comments. He, he spent a great deal of time reinforcing the value of the World Bank, and in particular, actually, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And he laid out steps that he believed policymakers around the world could take to expand global growth and opportunity. So he discussed why those steps should be taken now to create the conditions for shared prosperity. And he basically just set the stage for uh, some of the things that had happened 
and what he wanted to see when he got over to Australia. So he made note that sustained recovery with solid growth requires a comprehensive approach, uh, and it marshals all levers of, of economic policy. So he mentioned three, you know, monetary, fiscal, and structural. And in the short term, he said that the world fundamentally needs more demand, and so by using the fiscal space, you know, it, it was where it's available to make critical investments in people and infrastructure, then you get the credit flowing to the real economy, and you create an environment that encourages businesses to hire and grow, and policymakers can put their respective economies on the right track and contribute to shared global prosperity. So it's, he kind of talked about a comprehensive approach that had to include, but not be limited to, sustainable fiscal policies, along with, you know, medium and long-term structural reforms to promote ongoing economic growth. When you look at the United States in terms of the language of recovery, I mean, obviously, our demand, he spoke of the demand and how in our country, the United States, we had surpassed the pre-crisis levels and the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, you know what we're talking about. Uh, But we surpassed this in the first quarter of 2012, and we're almost 6% higher than before the crisis. So uh, domestic demand in uh, Japan and the U.K. was about 2% higher, which is slightly above the pre-crisis levels. But the demand in the Eurozone is what he was talking about. It still hadn't recovered. Uh, It was more than 4 percentage points, uh, 4% below, I would say, pre-crisis levels. And his take on that was that, you know, obviously with the United States, that it was our innovative uh, innovative and entrepreneurial climate that had a great deal to do with how we were able to pivot. So, um, you know, we have fiscal booths um, to the Amer- you know, like ARA, American Recovery and Reinvesting- Reinvestment Act. Um, and I think he mentioned uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program was one of them. And legislation like the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. And, he, you know, a rules of the road to make our financial system safer for consumers and investors. Now, uh, I don't know. I guess the first thing I was thinking of when he started mentioning that was that, you know, the financial and banking industry has really kind of got away with what they were doing here more so than the last crash, but maybe we'll get back to that later. So uh, back to Europe, uh, he gave policymakers credit for the steps that they had taken to put in place firewalls um, to improve their transparency in the banking sector and to enhance the, the transmission of monetary policy, and you know, frankly, to reduce the fear of the breakup of the eurozone, which is kind of what's, what's been floating throughout that region. And he noted that in some of the countries um, – the the growth there was still overly dependent upon exports. So basically he was urging them to get beyond the status quo policies into more resolute action um, by the national authorities there and other European bodies in order to reduce the risk so that the region doesn't just fall into a deeper slump. Valid point. So it's not like he was... uh, you know, calling him out or whatever. He 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 kind of gave credit where credit was due. Um, so some of the other things um, he talked about were some steps that would make a big difference. And um, you know, first in the countries like Italy, he was saying that they're structurally less competitive, um, or in France where labor markets markets or other rigidities were constraining their growth. And he was saying that the policymakers should accelerate and sustain structural reforms. Uh, the second thing that he said that, you know, as these reforms are being implemented, you know, there was a strong case there to extend the timing of fiscal consolidation in these countries so that the overall policy stance was more supportive of short-term growth. Um, so the point being, you know, that credible uh, fiscal and structural measures um, both need to be in place um, or a comprehensive approach would not be achieved. So 
<clears throat> Another thing he was mentioning about Europe is that it should take full advantage of the funds that were available through existing institutions to spur domestic investments like uh, European structural funds, uh, European investment bank, and domestic institutions and things like that. So um, he also said that the individual individual countries could reorient their development finance institutions to provide additional financing for domestic infrastructure investment in small businesses. So and he also uh, mentioned that it was critical that these countries with large external surpluses in fiscal space, like Germany and the Netherlands, he didn't really call them out. He just said um, that they should really pursue more fiscal policies to boost their demand. And, uh, you know, greater spending on the investments like the infrastructure that he was talking about, kind of a three-legged uh, stool here, would increase long-term economic potential and really advance the objective of uh, boosting growth in the years ahead. And so the scale of the fiscal effort, you know, needed to really reflect the urgency uh, that he was seeing there that they needed to uh, to uh, look at in addressing the, the demand shortfalls that they were experiencing. So it, it's not really uh, to say that the headlines are wrong by saying that he faulted Europe, but the connotation you know, from what I what I uh, took away when I was there, just wasn't as negative as it's been portrayed. And so his point was really uh, more about urging collective action and responsibility and uh, urging individual actions in countries to strengthen their own ec economies. Uh, Market-determined, flexible exchange rates were mentioned um, as an important source of resilience, but he also uh, talked about balanced economy with strong domestic demand and open trading and investment relationships to drive economic performance. So, you know, there was one comment I saw out there about it was taken out of context, but what he basically just said the math doesn't add up for every country to, to rely upon external demand to fool its own growth. And, you know, again, you know, can't really argue with that. It made a lot of sense. Uh, there were some exchange rate commitments made in multilateral groups, uh, uh, such as the IMF, and the G7 and the G20, which is, I think it was last year and year before, and now he's going back. And he was urging them to live up to these instead of what he termed beggar thy neighbor policy. Policies, uh, which aren't really the solution to the present global economic challenges that are being faced in the Eurozone. Uh, he also talked about fostering uh, global trade through high standard trade agreements that reflect shared values and, and mentioned an example of you know the President of the United States pursuing trade agreements in the Asia-Pacific and in Europe to open the markets to competition and provide consumers around the world with access to more products. Uh, so the third leg, you know, getting back to that whole uh, example, if you will, was really getting back to the IMF. So he referenced its role in driving global growth via its support in uh, Europe and the Middle East and Africa. And, of course, in that instance, he talked about Ebola and the support that was provided by them. And uh, oftentimes he said, you know, IMF is a first responder. So this is where he challenged Congress to act in the coming weeks to ensure sustained long-term growth by affirming our commitment to the IMF. And he said that the efforts that are on the table right now to ratify their reforms and modernize their offerings were critical. And uh, our national security and global standing really depend upon doing that. So uh, speaking of the legislation, it looks like I have a call I'm going to go to in a few seconds here. But, you know, just speaking of the IMF legislation, I mean, what is that? So back in April, April 2014, the 188 members of the IMF gave Congress until the end of this year to pass the reforms, which essentially give large emerging countries like Russia and China a greater say in the Bretton Woods institution. Um, or they threatened that they would reform the IMF without waiting for Washington. And, and some of the reforms also include doubling the IMF's permanent lending authority. So, 
you know, nearly all the IMF members have approved the reform legislation. The U.S. is the largest voting member. They blocked it from taking effect so far, uh, and the IMF said they're not going to tolerate it any further. So, you know, they got to the end of the year. These reforms have been negotiated since 2010. You know, you know, approaching a four-year uh, uh, deadline there. So they're they're basically saying we're not waiting anymore. And they talked about different workarounds and things they could do to um, to get around having to deal with Washington. And so, you know, from our U.S. perspective. The White House and most Democrats in Congress support the IMF reforms, but the bill has been divided. Um, it's it, the Republicans on Capitol Hill. There are some conservatives that have balked at giving the IMF more funding and more power. And some of the GOP leaders, they just want major concessions from the White House in exchange for approving those reforms. So obviously with the uh, recent election results, we'll see what happens. But it's clear that the IMF is ready to move despite the U.S. veto power. So I I think bottom line for me, uh, being there and listening, uh, obviously, you know, his remarks, there's no silver bullet. No one is looking for a miracle here. There's no simple solution. But um, a full range of policy levers, monetary, fiscal, and structural, which is what he talked about, those three things, um, are very necessary, and they reinforce one another, and that's kind of what he and others will take to the G20. So I'm going to go out here and see who my buddy is and what they have to say. Okay, so who is it? Hi, hello, hello. Hey. Hi, Donia. Hi, Hi, Charles. <laughs> my welcome co-host. I like when you come out here and talk. So, you know, were you been listening to some of the things that I was kind of uh, thinking of? Some, 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 of some parts of my it. head. I kind of, I kind of jumped in later, you know. But um, I, I think uh, this is one of those things where we have an opportunity to play a role, but because of a lot of posturing, we may not. And it's unfortunate, but that's probably what's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just this is kind of one of those early t- chances to see, you know, if we can kind of bypass some partisanship. I mean, what kind of concessions do you, do you know that the uh, Republicans are seeking? Um, because this isn't really something that favors the Democrats or the Republicans so much as it favors the country overall. I don't think it serves any one particular constituent base. IMF is there to uh, help stabilize and provide um, a, kind of a backstop for the international financial transaction system. And if that breaks down, it's going to hurt Democrats and Republicans. So I don't know why they're seeking, you know, advantage in this particular case. I, I, that's one of those things where I, I kind of want to see better cooperation. Does that make sense? I, I agree. I agree. And I, I think the other thing is that um, – you know, in looking at it from the other perspective, that we we tend to uh, like to, as a nation, like to jump in and and rectify and correct market forces uh, where other nations actually could be stepping up more. And so, I think that there is a valid position in saying that you know, hey, we're actually kind of we're 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 actually a, an example of how you can take the three legs of the reform and implement policies and reinforce them in a way that supports your economy instead of just kind of saying, well, we'll just get it from, you know, outside and not create any type of pushback that, that acts as a, as a driver um, to their economies. And so it's, it's, on the one hand, I think yes, you know that's what we're here for. We're first responders. We try to help out where there's where there's uh, uh, potential potential for disasters or catastrophes or financial disruption. But on the other hand, it's like you know sometimes you are going to have to write your own ship, and uh, you know we've got other concerns and, and things that we need to do here uh, that that 
you know, we have to we have to think more about how what we're bailing out. Because frankly, I mean, you go back to the whole thing with the financial corrections and the markets. And I said I wasn't going to really go there in this um, when I started uh, putting together some notes. But you can't really avoid that conversation regarding how yeah. we really didn't do much of anything um, comparatively to hold our financial and uh, banking uh, system accountable for what happened with the last financial crisis. I mean, what message are you sending? And now on top of that, we're talking about uh, investing more in the IMF and giving it more power. And I just, I don't know. I, I just there's, there's, see some contrary there's, there's a, there's a messaging there. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a reasonable uh, sense of unease that, you know, you know, a lot of people who lost their homes or suffered as a result of the uh, economy going into a tailspin, you know, personally they suffered, but a lot of or large organizations were bailed out. And yeah. while we couldn't make them suffer to the same extent as an individual because the suffering wouldn't be contained to just that organization, but would be contained to the economy, a.k.a., you know, we did fall into the trap of too big to fail. Um, and, and, and there's such concentration in the banking sector that, you know, you couldn't have, you know, a major organization fail without there being repercussions. On the other hand, it seems like what they're doing is approaching this as like a financial transaction. So they're they're basically suing companies like, you know, Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, and they're settling for billions of dollars. Um, but that's just moving numbers around the balance sheet. They take money from yeah. one pocket, they move it to another, and it's a few billion dollars. They're, in the prior financial scandal, a lot of people went to jail who were committing fraud or crimes. Now there has been, you know, many, 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 many fewer people. And I think that kind of points to a certain amount of unease that, you know, if, if, I, if I committed fraud and, um, you know, basically, you know, sold, you know, worthless instruments, made millions, and then turned around and these people lost their shirt, you know, the, the, um, the argument is, well, they should have known better um, because they were also, well, there, there was a lot of malfeasance. And that's why they're paying out billions in settlements. But these settlements, of course, are basically saying there's no criminal penalties in almost all cases. So, uh, you know, it's a new world. And I think, you know, there's a reasonable amount of, I think that was also part of, you know, people being un, um, un, un, unease. They're not happy with the Democrats or the Republicans. They're not happy with the fact that, you know, government isn't being held to the same standards that we are as individuals. So. Yeah, yeah, right. And and I think that, that that's sort of what I'm looking at when I listen to the message that comes from the U.S. to Europe and, and other places about, you know, getting their houses in order and, and putting up, you know, resilient infrastructure. And, and, I, and I just can't help the thinking, well, they're looking at us and they're saying, well, you know, you weren't even you were asleep at the wheel you know you actually either either you were asleep at the wheel or you willfully turned a blind eye um to your own institutions and you caused this you were a part of this you were a causal a causal issue you were a causal a factor here and now you're turning around and you're trying to tell us what we should do to restore our economies and you know you didn't even do anything. First of all, you caused it, and then you didn't even hold the people accountable. And now you're going to lecture us on what we should do. And so I, I, I can understand in a lot of ways why you know we have these difficult, um, you know, conversations at places like you know G20 at the summits like this because, you know, we're we're not really walking our talk. And I, and I think that if you're going to get people to look at you as an example, you have to do a better job of walking. 
and and I think that's part of it, and and, and we need to recognize that. And instead, I I hear, I mean, yes, I believe I agree with the fact that we are an innovative economy, and that that's what saves us a lot of times. But I think over reliance upon that can actually uh, cause us to implode. And I think it's part of it is they're spinning the message. You know, it's oh, we survive because of blah blah blah. And it's like, well, no, not really. I mean, we did, but there's still people that are suffering that are not being accounted for, and you're putting money back into the system. But you know, there's all sorts of uh, you know conversation we could even have about how that rolled out based upon our own work and what we do and how we saw those funds spent. But you know, a lot of it still went to the public sector. They sucked it up and they did their own little pet project. So it's just a yeah, we we know about that firsthand for sure. Um, oh, absolutely. With AARA funding, but I want to say something about what Lou said. You know, when reading the notes and reading what he said in the meeting and different things, one of the things he did point out was it wasn't that we didn't do anything. We actually did. You know, USA did act fairly aggressively to bail out the banking system. Sure, that added a lot of debt. Sure, you know, we invested in companies like GM, and you know, some of them we we took shares and, and ownership of, and then sold those shares back. Um, you know, some of that was done fairly well and, and better than a lot of other countries and so as a result the w you know the um the uh, united states has you know to some degree recovered well and that was part of his conversation was he was saying you know a few years ago he was saying you know hey america you don't have your act together now you know fast forward to now we're the only ones that are doing well and in some you know those conversations it's kind of like you know winners get to write the storybook you know, you if go. you're yeah. on top of your game, you get to kind of set the tone. Now, that's not to say we have no clean hands. I think probably true, and this is my underlying feeling, it's, it, the economy has restructured. And that while some people who've been able to benefit with financial assets have done very well, people who are, have less financial assets to invest is just you know, financial capital assets but are investing in their labor or their time. The, the, the contract between capital and labor has changed. There's a lot of people who, when they work, they can't get raises. Uh, there's very poor wage growth. There's a lot of people who dropped out of the workforce. Uh, the jobs that have been created are, are lower-paid jobs. Everybody knows this. So it's not like we're, we're crowing like, oh, look, we're doing so great, because everybody recognizes, while from a financial point of view, prices have somewhat recovered, to you know, almost the bubble era. But on the other hand, people know that labor and jobs have not come back, and that's a worldwide phenomenon. So there's a contract change here that's kind of like overall. So I think that's part of what Lou's trying to get at as well. Well, I guess that's it. This went faster than I thought. Wow. It just yeah, slides right into the end, huh? So thanks for tuning in this afternoon. You can find this broadcast as a podcast at the site you're using right now or on our Facebook page at backslash STR8 Talk Radio. As we said before, we'll put the URLs up for the video and text shortly, so be sure to like us there and follow us here. This is your host, Onya Keating, signing off at 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time on Thursday, November 13th. See you next time.